Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today, we have a very special guest, the granddaughter of the legendary illustrator Frank Frazetta and founder of Frazetta Girls, a family initiative dedicated to maintaining the legacy of Frank Frazetta. Welcome, Sarah Frazetta. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. No, I'm really looking forward to this. We've been attempting to get together for a while. So now that we're doing this, I'm, 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 I have so many questions I'm anxious to, uh, to talk to you about. Well, I am ready, and I'm 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 glad we finally got it together, and when we can finally do this together. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now we've met several times over the years at conventions and had a lot of fun when we released the 2016 edition of Battlefield Earth. The cover art that your your grandfather painted, "Man, the Endangered Species," was awesome. It's, it's an iconic painting now. In fact, um, the image of you posing next to the blow-up of that book cover, Dragon Con, is an image that is going to be this uh, podcast episode image. But you, um, you do a lot of stuff. I like with- that picture. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good one. Yeah, if it was a bad a one, of- I might say no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. No. <laughs> so you do a lot. Of, you do a lot of conventions. Yeah, you know, um, we, we were doing a lot of conventions when we were um, meeting and and when we were doing Dragon Con, and um, we were we were traveling all over the country from from about 2014 to 2016, 2017 we did a few, and then in 2018 we kind of decided to pivot and go entirely online. Now I have to say this: I, I loved conventions. I met so many people such as yourself that I've, you know, really formed connections with over the years and stayed in touch. And there's nothing like bonding over, you know, seeing each other in face and being able to, to do that. Of course, now COVID um, here, here we are stuck in Zoom land. But um, so, so conventions were, you know, the starting point to my company. And I, I really cherish all of those memories and um, it was, it was just, it was a really good time. I mean, I know you guys do them too, and it's, you know, they're, they're fun. They're, they're really a yeah. fun time. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately I didn't realize this, but in 2016, then when you were tailing off, that's when we actually met at DragonCon with that one photo that is the one that people are going to be seeing on this, on this post. So that was when you, um, were wrapping up on, on stuff. Yeah. Funny enough, Turl used to scare me when I was a little girl. I didn't know what he was and or what what that was for. Uh-huh. I mean, my my grandparents had these paintings. Um, you know, he, she, I think there. Were, I think you got uh, the um, L. Ron Hubbard owned those paintings, so I didn't yeah. have. I they, so the original was not hanging in the house, but they did yeah. have the limited edition prints. And yeah. I do remember looking at that one specifically and being very frightened. I had I had nightmares for a long time. <laughs> so here we are, twenty years later, and then I was I was standing next to him so yeah. <laughs> just had to tell us a side note <laughs> yes there you are you you conquered your fear i Stay, did yeah take that turtle yeah. so um so what was your grandfather like i mean so many people just totally revere him as an artist but you knew him also as a person albeit as, as a granddaughter but what was he like my grandfather uh, he was a really fun person he just had he, there was really never a dull moment with him. Now, um, I was born in 1988 and he had his major, uh, first stroke when in 1995. So the time I was spending with him, he was already kind of suffering from, um, at that point, thyroid issues. And then he had strokes. So 
I knew him more as the grandpa who Frank Frazetta rather than the artist and this like very like athletic, charismatic guy. Um, because like I said, he did, he did struggle. He, what he lost the, his ability to use his right hand. He had issues like with his appearance that he was really very insecure about. He had with Graves disease with that's part of his thyroid problem. Uh, unfortunately had bulging eyes at one point. And so he had, a, he had a lot of things working against him health related. So I think like, you know, for my grandfather, when I knew him, um, he was really in a phase of like reflecting and he was kind of winding down his, his life. It's, it's, it's sad to say, but that's just the truth. So he was really taking a time to be, be a grandpa. I think, you know, when he was a father, when he was younger in the height of his art career, he was, he was, he was a good dad, but he wasn't as involved because he had so many other things going on. So I think this was a chapter in his life where he could almost like play the role of a dad because that's what he, he really was to me, more like a father rather than a grandfather. Uh-huh. Um, because he, he really laid the foundation for, you know, my, my subconscious years. I mean, he, we together, we listened to Frank Sinatra. We listened to classical music, Stravinsky. We, you know, watched all his favorite movies. He, he basically brought me into his life and showed me like all of the things that made him him. And I, I'm, I'm really, really grateful that I was able to experience that and, and have that time with him. So he was, he was just it really, like I, like I said, he was, he wasn't able to really articulate himself. So I wasn't able to have those deep conversations about his approach to art or, or really anything solid in memories because he, he just wasn't able to recall that well. So it was really, we spent our time in the present moment, really enjoying art and, and, and life. Yeah. It's interesting you say about his, his uh, philosophy bit, you know, trying to talk about that uh, yesterday in anticipation of our interview and to help build up a little bit of, of, um, interest in this whole subject for people who only have a glancing understanding of Frank Frazetta. But he wrote an an essay for Writers of the Future that was published, I think, in Volume 7. And the beginning of it was, I was born with a pencil in my hand. Most artists reach a certain age, and then their eyes open, and they start doing art. I was drawing as far back as I can remember. I had unusual talent right then and there in that I saw things differently. I saw them more accurately. Some people to this day criticize me by saying I exaggerate, that people don't look like that, but they look like that to me. The truth is, from the very beginning, instinctively, I drew what I thought I saw. And then it goes on for several pages on the, uh, on the blog, which you can see on writersofthefuture.com. I moved the blog up to the very top in the blogs. But it's just his philosophy and what he did, He's just he was just the consummate artist. He was, his ability to, to see, and he said he, he visualized it in his own mind's eye, and that's what he painted. He wasn't trying to copy a picture from a paper. You know, he was he, he visualized it, and that's what he painted. And um, just just amazing man, just an amazing artist. Yeah, and you know, I I, I appreciate that interview um, that was published so much because, like I said, we weren't able to sit there and and talk about his philosophy or really really anything about his career. So when I have the ability to read these interviews such as this one, I, I, my heart melts because it's just an extra insight of to, to who he was. And as, yeah. as uh, his granddaughter now running his legacy. And I, I want to know every aspect of him. And for so many years, I just had my, 
my vision and my knowledge of, of what I knew, how, who he was. But when, when I um, opened up to, and, and there, unfortunately there were not many interviews with him. So right. the resources are limited, but so to go back to the interview, I mean, he, I mean, yeah, he, he was born um, in 1928. Um, it was during the great depression. He was growing up right, right before that in the 1940s. And, and so there, you know, uh, obviously we have, we have everything now we have the internet. And so we, we don't, yeah. we don't get bored, <laughs> but my grandpa, he was just, he was a, a kid with a lot of energy and a lot of, he had a lot of, um, he was a competitor by nature. And I think once he realized when he was a young kid, he had that like mentality of, of wanting to be the best at something, whether it was sports or art, he had to be the best at something. And he had that mentality too, because he was growing up in an era where there was, there wasn't, there wasn't much, there wasn't abundance of anything. And his parents were struggling. Um, You know, it was just classic Brooklyn. They didn't, my grandpa, my great grandpa was a jeweler. My uh, great grandma was a housewife. And um, when my grandpa started making money at the age of 14, they were like, Frank, you need to you need to give us the money. And that was normal at the time. And he's like, OK, I'll, I'll do whatever I have to do. But so so following up, he, he always had that pressure on himself. And he and he noticed that he was he was intellectual enough to have that insight and say, OK, I, I do have something here. But, you know, it wasn't without people pushing him and also noticing that got him to where he was. His his grandma, and I, this story has been told so many times, so I'll keep it brief. But his grandmother actually was his first customer and she paid him a penny for a drawing. And um, at that moment, he said, I can make money doing art. This is and I, I think he was like three, four years old. So to have that kind of realization and, and, and from there, you know, he, he was in school and he was like, like I said, he had a lot of energy. So he was kind of a distracted kid, not so much into like academics. And he would be scribbling in his notebook and going to the chalkboard and drawing and drawing and drawing. And his teachers noticed. And of course, like, you know, he was he was the eldest of four siblings. His parents had a lot going on. Um, I don't think that era really like pushed their kids. They weren't like, yeah, this this kid's got talent. You know, they, they had a lot of other things to worry about besides motivating their children. So it actually came from his school teachers who said, you know, this, hey, you know, this kid, your son, Frank, he's got an, like a crazy talent. You should enroll him into a school. Um, so when they heard that, they were like, well, Frank, do you, do you want to go to a school? And he's like, yeah, I'll go to art school. So he was, he was still in his, um, regular, you know, he was in elementary school at the time. And then they enrolled him at the Brooklyn Academy of Fine Arts. But, um, it, it was a, it was like a, a kind of like a little hole in the wall school. And uh-huh. there were stu- there were children from age, I think he was the youngest, he was eight years old to like, you know, 70 years old. And um, it was, it was taught by a gentleman named Mich- Michael and Michelle Falanja. He was from Italy. And um, he, he really, he really was keen over my grandpa's talent. And he really became his mentor, like pushed him in his adolescence to continue art. Um, unfortunately he passed away and, um, I I think my grandpa was only like, you know, 13 at the time. So he only had his mentorship for a few years, but after that he started going and and looking for jobs at, like I said, 14 years old and, and sure enough, he secured it. And he just, from there, I mean, he just kept going. It was, he never gave up. That was, I, I, I like to think of that as just because he had that competition in him where he, he competitor spirit where he just could not fail. So yeah. he he was he was a warrior. 
through through and through all chapters of his life. Yeah, it's um, he definitely was. He didn't go with this is the way you normally do things. In his art, in his essay that he wrote, he says it's the composition, shape, movement, color is secondary. It's these wonderful shapes. It's like music. It's the combinations. You can't just have a theme and then the rest of it goes flat. Somehow the whole thing has to work. So for him, you take a look at his art, though, because you see, you know, he says, I don't, color is secondary to me. I just, and you take a look at his compositions, that the objects are so amazing and everything fits just perfectly. And he says, even something looks really nice, I'll take it out if it doesn't fit as a composition, part of the composition with, with the shape and the object. And I'll make it a little bit less attractive because I don't want to, I don't want to distract from the main theme of, of the painting. So his essay is, is actually quite instructive of what he, you know, of what he sees as illustration and art and what's important, what's not important and why he's, you know, the, I mean, he's the top selling artist, isn't he? And I don't know if he's in, in the fantasy. planet, right? Yeah. In yeah, fantasy. Yeah. I mean, the one, mm -hmm. that was one, one painting sold for like, 13 Google dollars? What was that? Was <laughs> Egyptian Queen sold in 2019 for 5.4 million. And that was the record. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, and that, and that's a, a great point of like with his composition, I, I, he was a perfectionist in his art and I, I love um, how he speaks about, you know, the, the, the art has to be like, composing music because yeah. he was so influenced by music where I think that was his like favorite kind of art was music. I mean, Frank Sinatra, that was his, that was his idol. Um, and, and the classical music, I mean, anytime I'd go to my grandpa's studio, he had classical music playing and you, when you look at his art and then you put on uh, the rite of spring and, and you, and you look at his art and you go, okay, I, I can see, I can feel his Vivaldi, yeah. understanding of the music in his art like he really he captured what he felt about the music and what he saw in his head and then could put it on the canvas and you know as much as he was this guy who was you know he was com a competitor he was into sports he was really strong-minded he was also very sensitive and i think you have to be to be able to do masterpieces like he did i think you definitely have to have the fusion of the two of the the feminine and the masculine the yin and the yang and and i and i really believe that's what really created his magic was that he encompassed all of those things and then it it really it really appeals to everyone i mean there's fans of Frizetta fans aren't just one category it's multifaceted there's so many there's doctors there's you know metal band members there's uh, scholars there's lawyers i mean it, every it's all over so it's right. it's it's um that that makes it more challenging to do merchandising for Frazetta girls, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but I love that there's not a box, and yeah. that's what my grandpa always really you know in the in one of the interviews I read about him, he just said I want to be known as a creator, and because that's what I do, I create, and he didn't he never wanted to be boxed in either. With I mean he he did a lot of his subject matter for for work and for for his paycheck, but I mean he. He could do anything. He could draw anything, and he was interested in most things. I think this is a little side note, but I think he was most interested in animals. And it's interesting because if you and and the human body, obviously, that's an obvious. Yeah, but yes. <laughs> but he was <laughs> he was really really interested in animals. He loved um, loved going to the zoo when he was younger. Um, I guess he'd take my grandma when they first met. 
uh, my uh, gosh, I think my grandpa was in his late 20s by then. He was working for Al Cap at the time. And he was, he'd bring her to the Brooklyn Zoo for every date, just so he could go and, and study and look at the big cats. And so he, he, and he did say he had a photographic memory, which really helps an, an, an artist. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because he did, um, I mean, we use a lot of his art for the writers of the future. And um, he also, he was, Elwin Hubbard commissioned him to do three paintings. He did a painting for Final Blackout, of which the lieutenant, who's the main character in that book, Frazetta was his own model. He, he actually took a picture mm -hmm. of himself and that's, and he, did he do that often where he was his own, repaid himself in, in the character? I, I like to say that every single one is my grandpa. Like I, when people say, Hey, it looks like Frank. Like, and I'm like, yeah, it is. It's that's Frank. <laughs> he, he would reference himself for anything for, for everything. Rather he was, um, you know, he was, I wouldn't say vain, but when he was younger, he was very good looking and he knew it. And the women told him, and I mean, everyone told him. So he thought like who better than, than me. And yeah. um, he actually, his, his favorite hobby, um, other than drawing was, uh, and, and sports, were, uh, was, was photography. So he had his own um, black room where he would go and he'd develop film. And, you know, that was definitely a, a vivid memory of, of my grandpa when I was growing up. Would be like, where's grandpa? And he'd be in the dark room developing film. Um, and he took, he took an annoying amount of photographs. I mean, when I was a little girl, I'd be like, please, no more. I'd be like hiding from the camera. <laughs> like, I don't want any more photos, grandpa. But um, so but you got some really loved... cute photos though with him. I got to oh. say, you got some really cute photos with him. We, yeah, I do. I have some gems. I'm, I'm really yes. happy he annoyed me with the, with the camera. <laughs> and, yeah. and, but my mom, my mom and my aunt and uncle, they all said the same thing. Like he always had the camera when they were little kids growing up. And he, he really, he snapped a lot of photos that do look like Norman Rockwell paintings. Like they're really beautiful and whimsical. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when hopefully we, we hope to show those someday, they're not the greatest quality. But um, yeah, so with, with referencing himself, I mean, he, he was the perfect model. He had the athletic ability to kind of get in any pose. I mean, when he was younger, he was swinging on poles and climbing up buildings. I mean, he was crazy. Like they just, he had this insane ability. Um, looks like Spider-Man, but he's, yeah. he, he, um, so he, he really took advantage of that. And, and, you know, like, 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 yeah, the Lieutenant is Frank. So that's, that's with most of them. If you, if you really look back and study him now, you're going to see Frank in every painting. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, I'm battlefield earth. Unless he's wearing the mask that Turl was wearing. I don't, I yeah, don't really see him as Johnny. He, I think I'm for is probably under Turl, like may, may, <laughs> in may, his mind. <laughs> Perhaps. And then yeah. uh, when we come out with a re-release of mission earth, he also did a, a painting there called The Countess, which is the main one of the two main characters in the thing, The Countess Crack. And she's a serious kick-ass chick. And she's got, on here, she's taming these two leopardesias, these huge lions, which are, she just, she can control anything. She's really got the prowess over all animals and can like train them. And it's just, she's an amazing person. So, but it's just, what he did with his painting is, is likewise amazing. Yeah, that that one is really, really iconic. It's it's kind of funny. I, I recently got some insight about I, I noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I noticed with the Countess, uh, Dream Flight, Space Encounter, they all have a little bit of um 
the Frazetta the girls' bodies on them. They they're a little bit thinner than his his bodies in in like the peak of his career, which was you know the sixties and the seventies. And interestingly enough, he was asked to to say something about his friend Roy Crankle after he had passed away. It was his, actually his his best friend Roy Crankle. Um, right. Roy Crankle was one of the um, the first friends to really actually push Frazetta into a career. Without Roy Crankle, we might not have had Frazetta um, because he was he was in a, a bind with um, he just left Al Cap. He didn't have any work, so Roy Crankle came in and said, "Here, like let's um, let me let you get." let me give you some work in Edgar Rice Burroughs and we will work together. And he really pushed Frank and said, you can make a lot of money, Frank, like keep going. But anyway, so the, so the funny story was Crankle and my grandfather always were arguing about what's the ideal body type for a woman. And Crankle loved women who were very thick and voluptuous and curvy. And um, my grandpa ended up like, he he's saying he ended up going through his career like making them a little bit heavier at one time and then he said he brought back like the the thinner ideal body type so it was kind of funny to see in like the late 80s him he said like Roy Crankle's opinion so much mattered to him that he would go through the phases of like what his ideal body would look like so it's interesting to see like a, a second phase in in that commissioned art with the bodies and you'll have to look at it to understand what I'm saying <laughs> but if you go back to like Egyptian queen and then go to the countess um very very different in body types wow that's interesting I definitely will do that because in our Rise of the Future Lounge, we've got all of his, all of his books, all of his art books. So I definitely will look at that. Yeah, it is interesting. How you know, it's just your best friend getting in your head sometimes. And you're like, oh, maybe I'm making the girls too much like Crankle girls. Maybe I need to go back to my Frazetta girl from you know the '50s. So he he yeah. almost it was like he he brought that back with him. Everything cycles, and I think that was his. It was his really. Those were his like uh, some of his final pieces that he he created. His final oils. Yeah, no, it was, and we have all three of those pieces there. It's, it's, um, you know, he was an Illustrator of the Future judge. He was actually a founding judge of the Illustrators of the Future contest, and um, very dedicated to it. It was just interesting how, how he recognized the value of the illustration to go along with the story. Did he ever talk to you about that, like the value of illustration or art to storytelling? Unfortunately, that's not something um, he was able to like articulate at that time. So uh -huh. all I've known was through um, just basic from, like I said before, like the interviews and, and other stories who have talked to him. Um, but I, 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 I think I'm pretty sure I was at an event with him in, in, uh, where was it? Gosh. Florida? Yes. Yes. The one in Florida I, I, at, the, at, at Cape Canaveral. Yes. And I think I was, I must've been like seven or eight years old. And for some reason, I don't remember the event, but I, I saw a photograph. So that was you interesting. Were there, so were there. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> I was there because there's a picture. It was amazing. <laughs> People were there. They were just totally in awe. There's Frank. There's Frank. I know he enjoyed that. Like when he, when people really admired him. Um, I, I remember him just feeling like so loved. I mean, he, like I said, he was sensitive and he, he definitely was seeking approval. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, he, he would, did, he, what the things that he would tell me was that, you know, oh, I got, I get criticized by my art. If I would have been an athlete, I would have, you know, never had any criticism, which, you know, that's not true. But then in his mind, that was, 
that was the truth. Yeah. Um, and he, but he would say, you know, I, I do this for everyone. I, I want to make people happy when they look at my art. And I want to, in, in regards to storytelling, he said, I want the person enjoying his art, the fan enjoying his art to just really have a good time. Like he wanted everything, like, like in the essay state, it states that he, he wanted he wanted everything to be interesting, not, oh, this girl's really good or this tree is really good. He wanted everything to be great. And as far as I, I feel like he really captured the stories for um, writers of the future. But interestingly enough, a lot of the other illustrations, he claimed he had never actually read the stories and just, you know, would graze the books, uh, Robert E. Howard books and and kind of just go off of what he felt it should be. So he, he kind of made his own story up, like, but, but didn't really follow the narrative of other people's story, which is interesting as an illustrator, because it, <laughs> it shouldn't be like that. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. It's because of the quality of his art that Howard and a few others whose covers he did saw the incredible success or the comeback that they, that they got because of his artwork. No, it's it's so true. Yeah, he he really defined so many um, different IPs because of his artwork. And I mean, I think a lot of people have said that have worked with him before. They said we didn't really care if if Frank didn't do exactly what we said. If in fact we would we would like him to just kind of do whatever he wants and just give it back to us. But most of the time, there was no direction for him, and yeah. and he liked that. He didn't really like strict direction. Yeah, it's interesting with. Um, because with Rise of the Future, we ended up with eight covers from mostly from Ellie. Uh, she was the one I worked with, his, his wife, your grandmother. Um, what was she like? I mean, I have my own stories. Well, I'll get back to registration <laughs> yourself. A, I'm glad that I'm because that's because that was going to be my follow up question to your question. Yeah. What, what, what did you think? How is your negotiation process? <laughs> Probably <laughs> intense. Um, okay, well, okay. So, my grandma, she was. Uh, my grandma, I loved her to death. As a grandmother, she was unbelievable. She was like a little cartoon character. She was always making everything fun. I mean, the things she said, they were kind of like a little bit crazy, but I was a child, so I didn't know that. And then I had these, I'm very impressionable. So I then took her beliefs as my own for a long time. And then I got out in the world and I'm like, huh, that's not correct, is it? But my my grandma liked to live in like a little fantasy land. But I mean, she was, she was overall a really sweet person who just really knew how to live. And um, I think the business side eventually caught up to her with, I mean, it really stressed her out. My grandpa was very um, casual about business and um, a true artist in a sense of not being able to handle financial situations and negotiations. So my grandma really stepped in because she was, she was a strong lady and she said, I have to, I have to protect him because no one else is. And then she, she stepped up and I mean, that was in the, the early sixties and, and there weren't a lot of women in, in the positions like she took on at that time. So I think she had a lot of, um, of trouble, not in a way being respected. I think, I think she was more respected because of the respect everyone had for my grandpa. So it, was, it just kind of came, but it was like, this is Mrs. Frazetta, uh, give her respect. But over the years, she had a lot of, you know, bad people come along and it, it, it jaded her to the industry. So there, you know, I've, I've heard people say, I, I loved her. She was great to like, I, wow, I couldn't stand her. She was terrible. So I, I, it's either people loved her, or hated her, 
personally, I loved her. I, I miss her. I still have her phone number in my head and think of calling her. And I'm, it's been 10 years now since, 11 years now since she's passed away. And I mean, my grandma, like I, I love my mom, so this is not taking anything away from my mom, but my grandma was also like a mother to me and, and really did like the laying the, the laying the foundation with, with my subconscious. I mean, she was like my grandpa, like showed me everything she loved. We watched movies together. We were just, she really, she really was a person that like made you feel seen and heard and was very present, which, you know, is, is kind of rare to find. So um, it's, it's hard. It was hard losing her. She lost her battle to lung cancer in 2009. Um, yeah. and af- after that, my grandpa had a, had a hard time coping, even though they had, <laughs> they had a interesting relationship, <laughs> but he still missed her. He was, he was really, really upset. But so, so with that, what, what did you, what was your experience? <laughs> <laughs> well, it became very clear to me that Frank was the consummate artist, and one characteristic of an artist is that they're not necessarily very business savvy. Mm-hmm. They're into creating their art. So his success on the financial s- aspect, I saw as being Ellie. So she mm-hmm. was the one that actually uh, was able to negotiate and to make his art realize that the value that it really had and not what you know, the shysters will come in and say, ah, oh, this is just, this is second race. I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, you know, and they do their whole thing to, to play it down and validate. And she didn't buy into that. Um, so I, I negotiated most of those covers with her back all the way back to, I think, volume three, right? If we do volume three, and we're up to 37 now, but that, so it's been a while. Um, you know, she was fair. I mean, she also appreciated the contest. She really liked what, um, Edward Hummer's, you know, contest was doing for the artists and for the uh, writers. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to support it. So she was always, for me, she was a, a square shooter. And she asked one, th- you know, it was up, we go back and forth sometimes with the asking bid. But once we did our initial negotiation, it was pretty much, we were able to move forward for the, all the subsequent book covers that we did. And um, towards the end, when money wasn't a real problem for, you know, your grandparents, mm-hmm. um, the main thing was I said, yeah, I'll, I'll put a, you know, a plate inside the, the front of the book saying this painted by Frank Vizetta and describing it and who he was. And that was for her, that was more the value that she wanted was the recognition and acknowledgement of Frank for what he was and what he did. And um, so I made sure I said I would have done that no matter what. I was, I was so honored that he was, that he was one of our founding judges and continually said such nice things about Elwin Hubbard as well as about the contest. But I found her to be a straight shooter. She she was the uh, the chief defender of Frank and and, <laughs> and his value. It was I mean that's how I saw. I didn't know about any of the other stuff. I I heard various things, but my own my own experience with her was that she was she wasn't willing to be short shrifted. She wasn't willing to have somebody come in and kind of like pull the wool over her eyes. She she's had that happen, and so that wasn't going to yeah. happen again. You know. Fool yeah. me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And so exactly. she wasn't let that happen. And perhaps because when you get into big money, it gets the uh, the penalties are a lot bigger in terms of humiliation and, and what things get said. So that maybe that had that pressure on her. But my experience with this, she was, she was very much, I saw, I thought her as somebody devoted to, to Frank and to the, and making sure that the, that the business and enterprise uh, did well. 
It, it, that's a great analysis of her, and I'm I'm really glad that you had a, a smooth time with her. And and you know it it is it, that that says a lot that you know she she was a straight shooter and she just wanted someone else to be fair. So I mean it yeah. sounds like it was like the perfect matrimony there, and I'm I'm so glad that worked out. Um, but but yeah, she she was she was really the gatekeeper of the legacy, and I mean in so many ways. I mean my even for meeting deadlines, my grandpa was. Who knows what he was doing? Maybe just in his dark room, whatever. But he wasn't yeah. painting, and and she'd come in and and tell him, and like you know, Frank, you have you have twenty four hours. What are you doing? So she really she really kept him straight and 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 kept him focused. And I I think that without Ellie, I don't. I mean, maybe Frank's success wouldn't be what it was is today. I highly suspect that. Just I mean, he's a brilliant artist, but there's a lot of great artists out there which I've experienced, you know, just from the illustrators of the future contest. But so you, it's, it's a team there. And um, I wouldn't go far as say behind every great man is a great woman, but there, uh, there are definitely a, a couple that definitely reinforce each other. That's true. Yeah. And, and probably there's there with most people, maybe not a great woman, but like, but someone behind them, because I mean, yeah. <laughs> most people have like someone to inspire them. I'm, I'm like, what, whether it's their best friend or a mother or whatever, they, they have that in, because of artists, I feel like most artists, most writers, I mean, we're the most sensitive people. I mean, obviously the, to, sure. to be vulnerable all the time, putting out a piece of your heart. So you do have to have someone that's the opposite saying, just, you know, just go for it. Let's let someone motivated, someone willing to take all the risks. And that was definitely my grandma. She was not afraid of taking risks. Yeah. Did, did Frank ever use her as, it seems like she was, she was used as model for some of his earlier works. Definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, she, he would get um, a little annoyed if, if, if someone suggested that every single woman was Ellie. Um, but there were very obvious poses and, and, and you can see like my grandma's legs and, and, and definitely like, um, similarities of her face. So we've, we've, my grandpa had a little bit of a myth going for a while that, um, and I don't know who put this in his head. I think one of his close fans that, who was trying to create this narrative, but he, when he was a little bit, um, you know, his health was declining and he couldn't remember so well he was circulating a myth that he never used reference photos. And, you know, a lot of his fans still believe that. And we want to not, of course, in the most respectful way. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say, Grandpa, you know, what he was doing was lying or anything like that. It was just, he was just embellishing and he had early stages of dementia. So it became this, this myth that he never used references, but, you know, now as we're finding them and, and, um, old scans are being dug up and we're, and you know, the, the internet has everything and we have more access to photographs. You can, you can see like references and, and some of them like were my grandma and in her bikini. And so I'll find the, I just actually found a transparency like a couple weeks ago. And it was this, um, this pencil drawing he did of a girl holding her hair up and, and it's of her, her rear and she's standing in a lake. And then I found the exact foot pose of my grandmother. And I was like, ah, there's, there's the reference exactly. But, um, early on when, before his dementia set in, he, he did admit in interviews that, you know, he'd, he'd take a photo for the light reference or have my grandma pose for just a, a something that he really couldn't figure out like a hand or, um, so, so he did admit it in early, early years, but as he got older, you know, 
we just, I guess, start making up our whatever, whatever we want, whatever we yeah. want our narrative to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now you've got this, uh, you're the CEO, founder and CEO, you did, this is with your mother of uh, Frazetta Girls. How'd you come up with that idea? So um, my grandpa and I were very close, as I said. I never, besides being afraid of some of his art and, you know, just <laughs> respecting it, I it, it's kind of funny. My, my grandma and I would go in the museum when I was like a real little girl and she'd ask me to help her hang the art. And that, I mean, I wasn't going to actually physically help her hang the art, but I would stand back and tell her if it was straight. So I spent a lot of time around the art, but I never thought of the art as like a like something that I would be involved in financially or um, just, I never even, I just, it, I never went there with my mind with them. They were grandma and grandpa. That's it. And I mean, of course I, we went to some events that I don't recall. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and we, we did things together, but, but mostly it was just grandma and grandpa. So when my grandma passed away in 2009 and then my grandpa's health was declining through 2009 to 2010 um, I spent a lot of time with him. Um, he came down to f his Florida home and my mom and aunt were uh, looking after him for the time after my grandma passed away. She was his sole caregiver. Um, and so he was in Florida. My, my, um, my boyfriend and I would drive down. I was in college at the time and we'd see my grandpa every weekend. So I was really happy to spend that time with him. Um, at, 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 unfortunately at the same time, there was, um, an inner family fight going on. Um, it was, you know, really just about who got the art, which is, you know, my grandma didn't leave a will, um, which was problematic. My grandpa was in early stages of dementia. He was confused. So there was a lot of legal, um, turmoil going on and they were trying to figure that situation out. Um, and when my grandma, my grandpa passed away, I mean, I was, I was, devastated. Again, I still wasn't thinking about his art in any way of being connected to me. I was, I was, um, had just graduated, um, soon after, and I was working in a post-production company and, you know, my graduated with advertising PR and I was planning to do that. So I was looking for job searching and, and, and doing, uh, just other things on the side. Um, in 2013, when my mom had everything finally settled with, with the courts and the legal was all um, kind of figured out, my mom's like, you know, I, I want to do something. I, I'm, she was working with Robert Rodriguez. Um, my, my mom, my Aunt Heidi, and my Uncle Billy were working with Robert Rodriguez, the film director, to um, hopefully remake Fire and Ice. That was, the, that was the plan. Robert Rodriguez was, he was creating these like beautiful limited edition prints and making these cool full sublimation t-shirts. And my mom's like, oh my God, Sarah, like, do you want to, do you want to come work with me? Like, do you want to like maybe build like a Frazetta business? And I'm like, oh, what are you going to, what are we going to do? And she's like, well, we'll go to like, you know, a convention. We'll start there. Let's just get some like black t-shirts with the Frazetta signature on them. We'll bring some vintage posters and kind of just see where it goes. And then we started having Robert. He, he, Robert gave us his like banner that he was using at shows. And we had like Robert Rodriguez presents Frazetta girls because, or for Frank Frazetta rather. And, and it was really to promote like this upcoming remake. And so we were kind of tied in with Robert Rodriguez and hoping that this movie would get made and, and just trying to figure it out. Um, those, that was, like I said, like the years that we were going to comic cons and, uh, just meeting everyone. And I was, I was learning about his legacy. Um, everyone, you know, the fans, they know so much that they were really teaching me about my grandpa and, and, and his art. So yeah. it, those were really, those were really 
informative years and and definitely the, like the building blocks to what Frazetta Girls is. Um, and then, you know, in 20, 2017, my mom and I, we, we just kind of realized there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of like, you know, money to be made for where it's like my, my business. So I was still working jobs on the side. I was working in real estate and, uh, you know, as a, a, a social media marketing director and all these things. And my, my boyfriend, um, who I mentioned earlier, he had this background in merchandising and he is really strange because he and my grandfather, like I, when I'd come to visit him, I, like, he, he'd always say, where's your friend? And he didn't want to like see me. And I was the special one. And then I'm like, wait, what? So he, he was so into my boyfriend, Joey of now we've been together 12 years. You met him, John, you met Joey. You went, yeah, yeah. went to lunch with Joey. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. so Joey came in um, and Joey was also, he was doing his own thing. He was doing his merchandising and I don't know what he was doing. He was always on doing something new and different. And he came in and he's like, you know, Sarah, he's like, we have to, we have to make, you know, we really have to do this justice. Like grandpa, your grandfather is enormous and we have to do everything great, not just okay. And so we kind of stepped back and thought, you know, what, by when we're, what we're doing at the conventions, it was great. But it wasn't it wasn't enough for Frank. And and I mean that in like a not not in terms of the conventions not being enough. It was just in terms for like what Frazetta girls could afford really at a convention as a setup, as a, you know, a, a statement of like this is Frank Frazetta. So we we kind of we pulled back and we we started building a new website. My mom kind of stepped down. Um, and then Joey came in as my partner. And we really started to just build. And I mean, that was like the starting of the, of the Instagram. We just kept, you know, moving along and seeing what worked. And we're like, we're, we really want to build a huge online audience. I mean, that's the biggest reach is it's the, the internet. So we've been, um, you know, really since the end of 2017, we've been really just really trying to make this uh, complete in-house merchandising online brand. Um, so, so everyone in the world can have a piece of Frazetta and they can, you know, enjoy the content and, you know, it's, it's the conventions, like I said before, it's such a personal touch, but being able to be online and, and, and keep growing and growing and touching more people. I mean, the messages we get like, oh my God, like, thank you for making this merchandise. Like you guys are doing the work of a God. And I'm like, oh geez, <laughs> thanks. And it's really, it's, it's really flattering. Also, there's a lot of pressure. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's really the, the foundation of Frazetta girls is that's kind of how it started. And that's now where we're at. That's amazing. Now, a lot of people listening here are the aspiring writers and, and specifically now aspiring artists. And I think obviously right now with the pandemic, but even aside from that, where you can't get out to conventions, a lot of the artists make their way, they're a vast majority of their income comes from conventions. They go there mm -hmm. and people can see their stuff and they buy it and that's, and that's how they make their money. So for people listening, what are some of like the, I don't want to say here's the 10 easy steps, but what, are, what would be some of the steps for somebody to take as an artist to go from, okay, I've got art, but what do I do to be able to create a presence? You've, you know, you've picked Instagram as your main, primary channel on social media that you've, that you've presented it because I think that's, that's pretty much that platform, even mm -hmm. more so than Pinterest. Um, so 
what would you recommend then for an aspiring artist to do based on your successful, because you've, you've made it quite successful now with your, with your Frazetta girls and you sell a lot of stuff and there's a lot of activity that goes on there. What, what can you advise? Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, I think we're at 305,000 followers as of today on Instagram and those are all organic followers. I don't, I mean, well, the one thing I, I see, I think it was this, the stat was over half of Americans are Instagram famous now. And that's from a lot of purchased followers. And right. that's, that's the number one no, no, like don't buy followers. It doesn't, I, as I mentioned earlier, I was working in, as a social media um, consultant for a couple years on the side. And it was one thing I would tell my clients, like, you know, it's, it's just not worth it. It's not going to convert. It's not real. It doesn't feel real. And it, and it will never, it will never convert into what you want it to be. So that's, that's one thing is, is really letting time go and, and letting it organically grow and how you can organically let it grow is, is consistency. I mean, I, I see so many people that, go in and out of their feelings of posting. And it's like in Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, any of them really, Twitter, you have to be consistent. And that's being creative as an artist or as a writer, you know, you're making content all the time. So put your content online then and um, be very consistent with it. Be very disciplined and don't don't fear so much of like, uh, you know, the over, I, I think a lot of people have like analysis paralysis where they're overthinking the caption or overthinking what they're going to post or just post it. I mean, if you, if you mess up, if you edit, if you can edit it, like people make mistakes, it's okay. Um, I, I think uh, quantity over, or I'm sorry, quality over quantity. But again, you know, you, you want to try to make something, you want to try to make content at least three times a day. Like that should be a goal. Um, and that's, you know, putting yourself out there, putting your art out there. Um, another interesting thing, I mean, this is, it's a little bit different because I'm representing my grandpa's art. Um, but I've, I've recently, um, started drawing and, you know, I'm, I'm, I've recently was, um, published for a few variant covers and, you know, I, I have my personal page on Instagram is really just, you know, it's, it's like a little bit of my life. And then my, I'll post my art. And I've been posting my art since 2017 when it was really terrible, but I kind of had like this idea that I'd let everyone see where I started. And then hopefully like in 10 years, they'll see where I am and it will be like an interesting journey to watch. But, um, so I, I think, you know, you have to be personable and you have to show your face and, of people are going to, people are going to, uh, you know, want your art because it's beautiful, but they're also going to want your, their, your art or your writing because they like you. So I think that, you know, even with YouTube, like just videos, videos are so important now. And, and that's something we're working on, um, more video content. I mean, we just, we just animated, I don't know if you saw it, but grandpa's, um, his, his, it's weirdly called Spider-Man. And it was um, 1966. Uh, I think it was a, a, a cover from Erie, but we just had that animated, and it it, it in one day it had a hundred thousand views. So I mean that's incredible reach, and that's just that's what that's what it is now. It's video. It's p people want high resolutions. Never post a blurry photo <laughs> because yeah. then you'll then you'll blame it on the algorithm, and it's not the algorithm. It's your post. So that's kind of like my advice. I just think it's it's really about being consistent. I mean, right now with the Instagram, we, we started trying, we tried something different starting in the beginning of 2020. Yes, it was last year. And we're really doing more um, design driven um, posts on our Instagram. 
And a lot of people at first, because, you know, you can, it's almost, it's like boxed where it's like boxes of three, where you can see, you know, parts of his painting, or you'll see like the middle section, then the, the, the head. And then, but so it's separate posts. And then in, in someone's um, like, if you're scrolling, you'll just see like a part of a painting, but you know, of, of course some, we, we had comments at first, Oh, we don't like this. Go back to the old posts. And you know, you have people telling you don't do this, don't do this. And, and you really have to listen to your gut and say, no, I'm going to keep doing this. Like, thank you for your advice. I appreciate it, but I want to, I want to try this and see where it goes. And our main objective with that, with that was like, you know, people who are really, who are artists and really love his work they can go in and like see the fine details and the brush strokes and the colors. And it's just a different experience. And if you want to see the full post, go to our Facebook or go to our Twitter or Pinterest or Tumblr or any of the other social media outlets we have. So we, we, we took a different approach. And I think, you know, I'll end with that is just being, being fearless, just trying new things. There's no, there's no rules. Okay. Besides no nudity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's an obstacle. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm finding right now too. I've been trying to post this one, this one image of your grandfather at a Writers of the Future event. He's just so handsome, my gosh! But he's there. He's got a cigarette in his hand, and Facebook's kicked it out twice so far because it's got a cigarette in the picture. It's like, wow, really? Oh, geez. Well, they're going to censor everything from like the '50s and '60s. Then you know, what, yeah, what, are we gonna, yeah. what will we have left? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I hope they don't go too far with that. I mean, it's it's been really it's it's been a struggle, and I have so many artists. I see them all the time. Like, how could they? How can they censor art? And it's just you know not to get too far into it, but it's pretty absurd that we can see male nipples and not female nipples, and we're in 2021. I st- I don't understand it. I'm like, listen, I we're all adults here, sure. Like, and and and. The sex industry is no secret. Like, what are we doing? Like, you can put like an yeah. eighteen or up advisory or something, but do we really have to with art? I mean, it's it's pretty absurd. So I'm I I feel pretty passionate about that, and I hope I couldn't tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I understand the the physiological difference, but still, come on. Yeah, like, we yeah. where, where anyway, are we? I was we? Just surprised that a cigarette <laughs> the cigarette was a problem. But yeah, anyway. that's very surprising. Do you find that Instagram or Instagram stories does better for you? Um, the stories are important, but definitely the hard posts. You have to you have to do the hard post for sure. Do you do the same posts on both stories and on on Instagram itself? No. With with um with our stories we we try to repost um you know different different customers that have our merch or like um you know re- repost any mentions of of Frank or or our collaborations like um or or we do um product product uh, placement and and we do i mean that's it's that's important too as a, i think it's like a weird thing like as an artist you're like oh i don't want to i mean at that conventions they can come over they can look at the booth and decide what they want but on the internet, there's so much, like you really do have to show people what they want. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not being shameless. It's just really being like, you know, again, vulnerable and saying, okay, well, this is for sale and, 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 and posting about it, letting people know e- email marketing is still over, even over social media emails, everything. Yeah. Okay. So with all the stuff that you've done with, with your grandfather's paintings, is there any, one or two that are the most popular? Um, I would say his death dealer and 
Conan the Barbarian are still Death Dealer one and Conan the Barbarian are still the the top. Um, as far as like uh, his girls, uh, Moon's Rapture, um, it was once a cover for Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan, and he actually took Tarzan out and then put a beautiful girl sitting or standing on a tree limb. Um, the lighting is all wrong, but it works because it's Frazetta. And that is <laughs> that that's his third most popular painting. Wow. Okay. And when you do the merchandise and so you've got the actual paintings and you, now you take these, you've got your, I mean, obviously you're not selling anything original anymore. That's long since mm -hmm. not an option, but what type of prints do you do? Well, um, we actually work with a, we, we teamed up with a local studio um, about like 2014 and he was, his name is Chris Lenardi and he was um, just, he was a real perfectionist, like really all about qualities from Milan, Italy. And he kind of led us into like what direction to go in. I mean, at that time we were selling vintage prints and we were selling the limited edition prints from Robert Rodriguez. So we were guided by a professional printer and we started doing offering and we, we still offer uh, stretch canvases, um, textured fine art paper. Um, I mean, we have like a, the fire and ice, we have a movie poster that has like a, a metallic gloss paper. So we, we, we offer definitely an array of, 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 um, different types of papers specifically. I mean, some of the art like requires a textured paper. And then while some of the art is, you know, it could, it will be fine on a, a semi matte, um, photo paper, but, so much of his art really demands that high end quality. So you can really appreciate the brush strokes and, and the colors. And that's another yeah. thing we did is like, and you know, we, we were left with a lot of like rough scans. I mean, they were, they were pretty bad. So we've really gone in and mostly Chris and, and he's, he's, like I said, he has such a great eye and he's like meticulous with detail. And he's really helped us with the scans of like making them, making them what they, the paintings used to look like before they, you know, began to fade as, as most art does over time. Right. Well, that's good. And that's good to know on that. You know, like I mentioned earlier on that, um, Frank was a founding judge of the Illustrators of the Future contest. And that followed a few years after, um, Edward Hubbard created the Writers of the Future contest in 83. And it's interesting that, uh, the, the relationship between Frank and Ron Hubbard where Frank said, I love illustrating action and adventure stories, and no one wrote them better than Elwin Hubbard. And then Elwin uh, Hubbard wrote about Frank, he is really quite a splendid artist, and I've always been a fan of his. King of, he referred to him as king of illustrators. Wow. So their, their mutual <laughs> respect for each other was, was, um, was quite amazing. You could see that just in the way that Frank did you know, the paintings that when he was commissioned from them, how he, how he did them. This, there was a lot that... His create was was just amazing, and just um, that cover for Battlefield Earth. You know, at this point, it's it's become iconic, and you you already commented on the Countess how that was. It's amazing how much they both appreciated each other. And then Frank, as a like I said, as a founding illustrators of the future judge, he had this to say. You know, as a quote for the contest itself, he said, "The illustrators of the future contest is one of the best opportunities a young artist will ever get. You have nothing to lose and a lot to win." And um, that's just something, and that's why I'm all excited about being able to do hmm. this, this interview with you because of, of what Frank was able to not only do at the time when he, when he was alive and as a judge, 
but even his legacy to provide with this essay that he wrote and now with what you're doing with Frazetta Girls to keep his legacy alive and for other people, other aspiring artists, because so many people copied Frank, so many artists. You, you go to convent Comic Con, Dragon Con, you know, Fan X, and there were the Frank Frazetta, you know, wannabes, the lookalikes, or at least here's the next derivative from him that were that they inspired. And even some of our judges, one of our judges, um, they were trained by Frank. They they were some of the guys that went to, he, he would train a, a few artists at a time. And some of these guys were trained by him. He said he was, he was rough. He was rough as, he was very strict as, as a, as a master training artist, but, um, it was really how important. many how many sessions did they have with that? That's really interesting. When um, see it was um, Rob Pryor is is the most recent one I've spoke to about that. He's one of our illustrator judges, mm-hmm. and he was with me. He said it was a couple months that he was working with him, and that it was he was he was real strict on on technique and what you know what you're what you're doing, and he made him you know they, he worked him hard. But Rob Pryor is one of the most brilliant artists I know. I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just I have not. He That's paints with two he paints with two hands. He can even paint two paintings at the same time. Oh my he, god. <laughs> he paints at, at rock concerts, he'll be on stage painting. Um and when he really gets into it, he puts on his earphones and he's listening. And um his eyes are even closed as he's painting. He's just like he's so into it. He's just so into that create. It's it's amazing wow. watching him. And he's um he goes into like a meditative state, huh? Yeah, like total yeah. trance. That's correct. Yeah. That's that's incredible. Yeah. He's just he's just so brilliant with it with his art. But anyway, um, I just want to make sure that people listening to this, you need to submit to the illustrators of the future contest. Frank was part. Of, like I said, he was a, an original judge on this thing because he saw the importance of it. And like I just read, um, this contest that created by Owen Hubbard, the illustrators of the future contest is one of the best opportunities a young artist will ever get. You have nothing to lose and a lot to win. It's free to enter. And it's, um, I said, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to let her say, thank you very much for entering. Please enter again. And it's continuing to grow. We have entries now from over 175 countries. It's one of the major featured art competitions at Dragon Con. It's, um, it's just because of what it does. It, it, it levels the playing field because when artists enter the contest, there's no name. All the, all the judges see, and it's people comparable to the likes of Frank Frazetta or the judges, the top in the field. But all they see is the art, the three pieces of art that you submit, and there's no name on there. There's no nationality, no sex, no nothing. It's just straight the art and a number. And so we have people winning from all over the world um, as a result based on the quality. And we have it's interesting seeing people who – are from Vietnam. Their art style is different than from Iran. It's different than Turkey. It's different than um, Portugal. And because we have winners from all over these places, and you take a look at the art that gets published, and it's way different. You know, each piece, but it's just beautiful art. And so it's not like it has to be American art or it's got to be British art. It's just it's the creativity that is being looked for, and so it's open to everybody. So again, following with the, with. Frank Frazetta's legacy to enter the contest. I really recommend anybody listening to stuff. Please do it at writersofthefuture.com. And then there's on the left side, you navigate and it says enter illustrator contest. And you do that and you can enter. Like I said, it's free to enter. You can enter online. It doesn't cost you any money. And um, you have nothing to lose and um, everything to win. So it's been great speaking with you. Um, it's amazing. Our, our hour has already come and gone. And, I can't uh, believe it. I just looked. I'm like, how? Like, I just felt like I was in a. <laughs> I, I felt like that was that was fun, John. Thank you. Yeah, it's I never been a feel long like time. that. 
I always feel yeah, like time is- standing still. So that's, that's that says a lot. That's great. This is this is very good. Okay. And <laughs> thank, thank you, you again. Li- yes. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. 